0: everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong, and we are going to talk about the update of the trial of former officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. I was about to say killing, but we haven't determined yet whether or not this amounts to second or third degree murder or second degree manslaughter. I will say uh, before we even get into it that I think the prosecution has done really an excellent job in this case. We're going to discuss a big abortion decision from the Sixth Circuit and talk about whether or not this might undermine Roe versus Wade. We're going to discuss the latest Supreme Court decision from its so-called shadow docket, dealing with COVID restrictions and with freedom of religion. And finally, we're going to remind you about who Bernie Madoff uh, was. I was about to say is, but he actually passed away. So we've got a lot to cover. First up, the Chauvin trial. I've been watching this on and off, and... Joe, let's get started with this first topic. The trial of former Officer Chauvin in the death of George Floyd is now in the phase where the defense is putting on its case. The prosecution rested. The defense probably has a few days of putting forward its own witnesses, and then we expect that closing arguments will occur on Monday. Joe, can you remind us who are some of the key witnesses that the defense has called so far?
1: Thank you, Jessica. Glad to be here. On Tuesday, the defense called its first six witnesses, including a use-of-force expert. And then on Wednesday, the defense called forensic pathologist Dr. David Fowler to testify in Chauvin's defense. Let's talk about what Fowler said. Now, as expected, Chauvin's defense case appears to be based on the claim that George Floyd died from a sudden cardiac event associated with existing health problems or perhaps drug use or maybe a combination of those things. Fowler stated that George Floyd's health problems and drug use contributed to Floyd having a, quote, sudden cardiac arrest during his arrest by Officer Chauvin. Fowler said that there is a distinction between cardiac arrest and death. So we'll see how that plays out. He also posited that Floyd may have suffered from carbon monoxide poisoning during his arrest as his head was being held to the pavement near the exhaust pipe of a police vehicle. The prosecution later challenged Fowler about his statement about carbon monoxide, kind of swatted that down, and they moved on. He also said that he believed that George Floyd should have received medical care at the scene, saying, quote, immediate medical attention for a person who's gone into cardiac arrest may well have reversed that process. Okay, Jessica, now that we've moved into the defense testimony in this case, can you please give us a summary of how you see this case progressing?
0: Yeah, the case is actually progressing exactly as the prosecution and the defense laid out in the opening statements a few weeks ago. And there are really three big issues here, which we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before. The first is did Officer Chauvin in fact use excessive force or was it reasonable force? The second, was that force the substantial cause of George Floyd's death? And then the third, can the prosecution prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? Now, there again, Officer Chauvin's being charged for second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. He's not being charged for first degree murder, which is a premeditated murder. So the Highest charge here would involve the idea of something called felony murder, and the idea would be that Officer Chauvin committed a felony by assaulting George Floyd by using excessive force that amounted to an assault, a felonious assault, and that because George Floyd died as a result, you can charge that as murder. So that's a little bit of the legal background here. Then the the second degree charge deals with something called depraved heart murder. And then, of course, manslaughter requires even less for the prosecution to prove. You have to show, um, you don't have to show the same, it's called mens rea or state of mind that Officer Chauvin would have had. Now, the defense, not surprisingly, is trying to take on each of these big Buckets, right? The first thing that they're saying is no, it it wasn't incessive force. In fact, if you look at everything that happened on that day, the force was reasonable. The second thing, I think this is really where they're going to spend most of their time, is this kind of battle of the medical experts saying that, look, George Floyd had pre existing conditions, he had high blood pressure, he had heart disease, and Uh, He had drugs in his system, and those were the substantial cause of George Floyd's death. The punchline here is that we need to remember the prosecution and the defense have really different roles. The prosecution, again, has to prove to all 12 jurors, it has to be a unanimous verdict beyond a reasonable doubt that Officer Chauvin, in fact, did either commit murder or manslaughter. And the defense has a much lower threshold And the defense just has to prove to one juror, do you have a bit of a reasonable doubt? In fact, do you have a reasonable doubt that Officer Chauvin and then fill in the blank? Because the defense's role here really is to try and have a hung jury where they cannot make a decision. Um, You know, as I said in the introduction, Joe, I think that the prosecution has put on a really strong case. And I was... um, talking to texting with a friend while I was watching the beginning of the defense's case and i some of those videos i think in fact just showed why people of color are anxious at times about interacting with police officers and law enforcement that's not a global statement on police officers it's a statement on the fact that i think the defense was putting forward videos that in fact showed fear by People of color. Um, the, there was a video that I think was supposed to show how George Floyd reacts to drugs or reacted to drugs. I'm sorry, I should say. And in fact, what it showed to me is that he was really worried about being pulled over, and that he was he kept saying to the police officers, "You know, don't shoot me, don't don't rough me up." And I, I don't think that was a particularly compelling strategy. Again, we'll see if the defense can get to one of the jurors to convince them if um, the prosecution didn't prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. So that, I think, is where we are. And I know that there's a little bit more, in, I think, very important information that you want to share with listeners about the trial.
1: Yes, Jessica, we will keep an eye on that. Closing arguments start on the Chauvin case next week, I believe. But complicating the narrative of this Chauvin trial is another police incident that took place on Sunday, April 11th, just last weekend, also in Minnesota, less than 15 miles away from where George Floyd died. On Sunday, police stopped 20-year-old Duante Wright and attempted to arrest him for outstanding warrants. Wright struggled, and Officer Kimberly Ann Potter shot him once in the chest. Wright tried to get away but crashed into a barrier down the road. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The next day, police said that Officer Potter had intended to use her taser but grabbed her gun instead. On April 13th, both Potter and the Brooklyn Center, Minnesota Police Chief Tim Gannon resigned. Potter was arrested on Wednesday and charged with second-degree manslaughter and taken to the Hennepin County Jail. Incidentally, the same jail where Derek Chauvin was taken after his arrest for the George Floyd incident last year. In the aftermath of the Wright shooting, Chauvin's defense attorney asked Judge Peter Cahill to immediately sequester the jury in the Chauvin trial and to re-question jurors about what they'd heard about the Wright event. Judge Cahill denied that request and said that the jury would be sequestered when closing arguments are expected to begin, likely early next week. Worthy of note here is that one of the jurors in the Chauvin case lives in Brooklyn Center where the Wright shooting took place. And Jessica, before we move on, a sad footnote that these two stories are related. It turns out that George Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross, was once a teacher of Duante Wright. Okay, Jessica, let's switch gears. There was just a big decision by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals about abortion rights. And you think that this case might be the case that threatens Roe versus Wade? What's different about this Ohio law?
0: So, this Ohio law makes it a felony for a doctor to perform an abortion if the doctor knows or has reason to believe that a Down syndrome diagnosis or the possibility of a Down syndrome diagnosis influenced the woman's decision to seek an abortion. Now, Obviously, there's, like we can call it a loophole in this law. If the doctor doesn't know the woman's reason for seeking an abortion and doesn't have reason to know, and the woman either doesn't share or purposefully lies and says, no, that's not playing into my decision at all, then the Ohio law would not come into play and it would not prevent the doctor from performing the abortion. And Again, it would criminalize the doctor's conduct, not the woman's conduct, and it would create a felony. It would mean that any doctor that does, in fact, perform an abortion under these circumstances would have committed a felony.
1: And what did the Sixth Circuit Court say in this matter?
0: So the full Sixth Circuit, by a vote of nine to seven, lifted an injunction against the implementation of the law. Let me say that again. Basically, lower courts had said this law cannot go into effect, and the Sixth Circuit said, yes, it can. That's what lifting the injunction means, that now the Ohio law can, in fact, be implemented. And the majority, let's point out that it's a thin majority of the Sixth Circuit, agreed that the law doesn't actually ban abortions. They said it just regulates doctors. Now, in a separate concurring opinion, Judge Griffin wrote that the Ohio law, quote, does not prevent women from undergoing abortions. Rather, it prohibits state-regulated physicians from knowingly carrying out abortions for eugenic reasons. There's a lot of mention of eugenics in this particular opinion in the many separate opinions. Let's remember that, uh, former President Trump really helped to reshape the Sixth Circuit. I believe that he nominated six members of the Sixth Circuit. And when you have uh, a split of nine to seven, obviously six members makes a big difference.
1: Now, Jessica, of all the various abortion cases we've discussed in our podcast, why do you think this case is destined for the Supreme Court?
0: Well, a couple of reasons. One, the current makeup of the court. Um, Two, The Supreme Court might review this decision because it appears to be at odds with controlling Supreme Court precedent. So we all remember that back in 1972, the court decided the Roe versus Wade, which located a right to privacy for women to obtain an abortion in the Constitution. Put another way, it found that there is a constitutional right to obtain an abortion, 20 years later, a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey basically changed the standard. And they said pre-viability, meaning before a fetus is viable outside of a woman's body, pre-viability, the standard is that the state can't impose any, quote, undue burdens on a woman's ability to obtain an abortion. Now, you can fairly read the Ohio law as not just an undue burden, but an all-out ban, an outright ban. Now, again, this majority of the Sixth Circuit didn't agree. They said this isn't a ban on abortion. It just regulates doctors. But it does seem to me to be in direct conflict with Roe and Casey, which are the big Supreme Court precedents when it comes to abortion rights. The other reason that I think the Supreme Court might take up this particular case is that There's now a circuit split. So the Sixth Circuit said one thing, which is that this law can go into effect. And the Seventh Circuit, ruling on a similar, not identical, but similar law, said the opposite, said that law cannot go into effect. So that's part of what the Supreme Court does. It has to rectify these circuit splits. It can't be that the Constitution means one thing in the Sixth Circuit, but it means another thing in the Seventh Circuit.
1: All right, Jessica, thank you for clearing all that up. And speaking of the Supreme Court, the court came out with a decision on religious rights right before midnight last Friday, last weekend. Why are we just hearing about this case now? And what is a shadow docket exactly? It sounds to me like the title of a pulpy John Grisham novel you might find (laughs) in an airport bookstore on your way to some far flung destination.
0: Uh, Yes. So what is the shadow docket? The shadow docket is a procedure that basically allows the Supreme Court to make emergency decisions. So think about a case where a man is about to be put to death. You don't have time, and there's an appeal to the Supreme Court. You don't have time for the Supreme Court to say, okay, we're going to set this for oral arguments next fall. Here's the briefing schedule. The amicus briefs have to be Uh, submitted by this day, you don't have time for any of that. You have to move really quickly. And so the shadow docket allows the Supreme Court, without setting a case for oral argument, without having a full briefing, without, frankly, uh, explaining itself in the same way that we're accustomed to, meaning without a long opinion, um, which all means with a lot less transparency, it can decide issues quickly. Now, The shadow docket used to be used fairly infrequently. Now there's just been exponential growth. And this is one of the things that I think we should devote an episode to just talking about the shadow docket, the types of cases that are now being heard by the court, or not heard by the court, but reviewed by the court um, as part of the shadow docket and really what it means, which what it means is a lack of transparency. So that's why we didn't hear about it. And it, you know, people on... And Twitter were joking, oh, the decision's going to come out around midnight on Friday, and that's exactly when it came out.
1: All right. So it may or may not be the title of a John Grisham novel that you would find in an airport bookstore, but let's focus on this specific case, Jessica. What was the restriction and what did the court say?
0: So this was another California COVID-based restriction, and it prohibited gatherings of more than three different households in a home. And this particular restriction was set to expire on Thursday, April 16th. The Supreme Court actually ushered in its expiration or death um, less than a week early by ruling on Friday that, in fact – the restriction could no longer be applied. And the argument here was that it unduly burdened the free exercise of religion, that it infringed on the First Amendment right for the freedom of religion. The argument being that you cannot have, for instance, a study group, a religious study group, you can't have a Bible study group in your home with more than three households because of this restriction. And that's actually – what the majority agreed with. So the majority said, even though there's a restriction applied to all types of gatherings, it was not in fact neutral and that secular activities were treated more favorably than these religious activities. The majority spent a lot of time talking about the fact that more than three households could gather at other places, again, where you would engage in secular activities like hair salons, hardware stores, movie theaters, Now, Justice Kagan, a member of the liberal side of the Supreme Court in her dissent, said that's absolutely wrong. This is neutral because it applies to all gatherings, no matter what you do, of more than three households in a home. And she said there's reasons that you would treat trips to the hardware store, trips to the movie theater, trips to the hair salon as different They're different because the epidemiologists, the scientists tell us that there's a lower risk of infection in those cases. You're probably not gathering as long, not exchanging as much air. Uh, You likely have your masks on. There's a whole host of reasons, she said, that you can treat those situations as different. And then she has this line, which I think we'll be quoting for a long time on this point, She says the law does not require that the state equally treat apples and watermelons. Now, that's a Supreme Court justice uh, using example that we can all understand. So that's what happened in that case. That's the majority and that's the dissent.
1: But right, Jessica, check me on this. The effects of having religious conservatives like Justice Amy Coney Barrett on the bench are beginning to be reflected in decisions by the Supreme Court. It seems to me as if this is just the beginning. You know, given how Trump's court appointments reshaped the court in the last few years, it seems that we'll be dealing with decisions like this for some time to come. Am I right?
0: Yes. I mean, so you're dealing with as somebody else is celebrating. But yes, I think that's exactly right. I mean, President Trump, former President Trump absolutely remade the federal bench. And so while he's no longer in office, I kept saying this, and a lot of people kept saying this, we're going to feel his impact for decades because he nominated and appointed successfully appointed I think, more than 200 members of the federal bench and a third of the Supreme Court, as you point out. So in the beginning of COVID, these restrictions were typically upheld by the court um, at least before the end of September. Now, what happened in the end of September? Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, as we all remember. So it really matters who's on the court. Now, if you believe that your religious rights were infringed upon, then this is fantastic news. And in fact, it's good that the Supreme Court made this decision on the shadow docket, meaning very quickly, and that they made the decision um, six days before the restriction was meant to expire because, you know, 30 seconds is too long. Let's think about, you know, a different example. If the State had said to reporters, you're not allowed to report on Johnson & Johnson for 24 hours, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We need a cooling off period. A lot of people would say, I know it's only 24 hours, but that's 24 hours too long. Now, on the other hand, um, we have people like Justice Kagan and the other liberal justices who are saying... We're still in a pandemic. States have broad health and safety concerns and broad police powers, and they're allowed to use those. And this, in fact, was neutral. It applied to anybody who wanted to have a gathering of more than three households in their home. So that's a long way of saying, Joe, you're right. This is a new Supreme Court. This is a very conservative Supreme Court, and we're going to be feeling that for a long time.
1: All right, Jessica, thank you for that. Thank you for the gut check. Now, before we roll out of here today, there is an obituary we have to get out of the way. Bernie Madoff, whose fame came from the infamy of executing America's biggest Ponzi scheme, died at the age of 82 on Wednesday, April the 14th. Madoff died in jail at the Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina, where he was serving a 150-year sentence for defrauding as many as 37,000 people over a number of decades, including... Including Steven Spielberg, actor Kevin Bacon, the one time owner of the New York Mets, and Nobel Peace Prize winner Ellie Wiesel along with thousands of other investors spread out over 136 countries, as I said, over a number of decades. Authorities have speculated that Madoff may have fleeced his victims to the tune of as much as $65 billion, billion billion with a B. Just to clarify that, Madoff's attorney said that he had been treated for terminal kidney disease and that a request for compassionate release had been denied in June of 2020, so he died in jail. After being arrested in December of 2008, Madoff pleaded guilty to 11 federal crimes in 2009 and was eventually sentenced to the maximum of 150 years, as well as the restitution of about $170 billion. Again, billion with a B. It's a number that's almost incomprehensible to me. Madoff constructed his pyramid scheme by depositing money from investors into a bank account and paying off new customers with funds from previous customers and issuing falsified account statements to clients. That's a classic pyramid scheme there. At the time of his death, the Madoff Victim Fund had paid roughly 37,000 victims, with most of them receiving 80 percent of their losses. In an email to CNBC on Wednesday, lead Madoff prosecutor Mark Litz said, "Quote." I think I speak for the team that prosecuted Mr. Madoff and his associates when I say that his passing closes a dark chapter of deception and greed that irrevocably damaged the lives of tens of thousands of victims. From start to finish, this episode has been nothing but devastation to everyone he touched. And there we find an end to the Bertie Madoff chapter.
0: And speaking of chapters, I'm going to try the most ridiculous transition, maybe in the history of passing judgment, which is let's move from Bernie Madoff to talking about Joe. You got a new board game and you feel fairly passionate about sharing it with us. So tell us what's going on with you and your board game and why you sent me a picture in which you looked more depressed than our least favorite day of the year, which is when the time changes from daylight savings time to standard time.
1: I think the word, Jessica, would be flummoxed and confused and frustrated more than passionate. Exactly. But yes, we here at the Armstrong household, uh, my special lady friend and I have reached what I call the board game phase of a pandemic, where we have reached the Netflix end screen on number of numbers of occasions. We've rewatched all of our favorite shows. We have gone on countless walks and we're looking for new ways to keep ourselves distracted while we keep ourselves sequestered at home. And both she and I are space nerds. We love uh, anything that has anything to do with the space program. So we had heard that there was a game based on the Apollo program that sent us to the moon in the late 60s and early 70s. The game's called Apollo. It is a Target exclusive. So we marched ourselves over to the local Target, masked up, of course, and procured a copy of that game. We brought it home. We've been playing other games, Jessica. What can, wait, Before I move on, what can, do you play games in your house? Is your clan like uh, card game people or board games? What do, what do you think?
0: Emotional, psychological, uh, card games, board games. I am a fan of a game called Rummy Tile, and mm. I'll leave it at that for everybody else who's over the age of, um, I don't know, ninety-two to ninety-three to know what
1: I'm talking about. <laughs> That's your demo, huh? Yeah. Uh, is is that similar to Rummy Cube?
0: It is. Um, I'll maybe we'll post some photos on the Passing Judgment Instagram or uh, Facebook, and and let people see us playing board games because that's what everybody needs in a pandemic
1: <laughs> now that's exciting now here's the thing all right let's, let's get back to this Apollo thing so uh you know we we've played the, the Trivial Pursuit we've played the Scrabble we got a new copy of the Scrabble recently I am currently winning three games to two in that contest uh, we, we've, we've, got a Beatles trivia pursuit game, which is ridiculously complicated, which brings me again, back to this Apollo game, which is cool in a way there's all kinds of, you get a little control panel. You can play with multiple players. There's a mission control person. And then there are the other people are the astronauts and it's a teamwork building game. There's a number of dice involved. But to say that these instructions are confusing and Byzantine would be an understatement. I consider myself not to be a stupid person, but I had a really hard time with these instructions. My special lady friend did as well. We sat for the better part. It said, you know, you can play the game in in an hour. And by an hour, Jessica, we had just barely got everything set up. We're trying to wrap our heads around how we played it. We got out our phones. We're watching YouTube videos, trying to figure out how to play this game she came up with an interesting point it's it's reminiscent of the type of role-playing games like dungeons and dragons where there's a master like a person guiding the process which would be analogous to mission control in this scenario and they're kind of guiding everyone through this process and you roll dice and the dice are different combinations of things mean different things but it was just layers on layers on layers and i suppose jessica i will close with the fact that other than the frustration not even a pint of beer helped me get through that and that in some ways. It is very much similar to getting to the moon itself, which is an extraordinarily complicated procedure that we as Americans, it took a lot of effort from tens of thousands of people and the better part of a decade to get to the moon. So in some ways, Jessica, it might've been easier to actually go to the moon than it is to play the Apollo game.
0: Well, Joe, that was quite the emotional roller coaster. Uh, That is a wrap for us. We love sharing these conversations with you. Joe, as you can hear, really loved being able to get that off of his chest. You can find Joe across the socials at In Depth Day. You can find me at Levinson Jessica. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. And on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod, maybe we will post that photo of you looking uh, very flummoxed uh, with your board game. You are, as you said, a very smart person, and you didn't say it like that. And therefore, it is humbling when that happens to all of us. We wish our listeners a good day, and we will talk to you next time.
1: That's one small step for man,
0: one giant leap for mankind.